Competition law is a subfield of other market and economic-focused legal fields that's focused on incentivizing through various carrots and sticks and via the framework of how society and commerce function, competition within commerce. The theory here is that more competition, both in the sense of more competitors and in the sense that competitors can better challenge each other, leads to better products and services, cheaper prices, and thus over time a superior marketplace for those selling goods and services and for consumers on the other end of all those transactions. This also, in theory, makes life better for the relevant government entities as a more flourishing economic situation and happier populace means less social unrest and more tax revenue flowing into government coffers. A win-win-win situation. One facet of the larger body of competition law is focused on what are called restraints of trade. Basically, anything that limits or reduces competition, especially things that restrict the various involved parties' ability to conduct business the best way they know how. This aspect of this type of law coalesced several hundred years ago in Britain, where concerns held by burgeoning manufacturing companies led to the deployment of contracts that said, in essence, if you come work for us, using our specialized textile machines, for instance, you can't then quit and immediately start up your own textile business down the street using what you learned from us, including our valuable trade secrets to then make similar products and steal our customers and generally threaten our business. These contracts were typically limited in geographic scope, saying former employees could not start up a similar business within the same city or region, and it often included a time period as well. You can't start up a textile business in the greater London area for the next three years, let's say. This type of contract for a long time, wasn't widely enforced, even if businesses attempted to make it a real-deal, legal sort of thing. Back in the day, before labor was commodified by modern machinery during the Industrial Revolution, you would typically have just one trade, a cobbler, a blacksmith, whatever. So legally banning someone from practicing that single trade they were capable of doing wouldn't just be cruel, it would create a population of people who could not do anything, couldn't contribute to society, and would thus be, through the lens of economics at least, a drag on society. The government was not keen on that, perhaps understandably, so although these clauses existed in labor contracts, they weren't typically enforced. By the late 19th century, though, when new machinery that enabled the rapid training of people to work different sorts of jobs more easily, making people more interchangeable, there were several rulings that challenged this norm, most of which focused on the extent of the limitation and the seeming fairness of it, rather than whether or not there should be limits in general. One well-known case pitched an arms investor against a gun and ammunition company, and the contract required, in order to do business with that company, he not make guns or ammo anywhere in the world and not compete with the company in any way ever. Which, 
is quite the ask, very broad. That would be similar to that olden days concern of being restricted from engaging in your only real trade, which in this case was an adjacent part of this weapon investor's business, but still. And this contract attempted to lock in that restriction in perpetuity and globally, which is about as locked down as you can possibly be by this sort of thing, which again would be undesirable in the big picture sense, in addition to the individual sense, because it would mean this inventor could not invent the things he was capable of inventing. He would have to quit his chosen and trained and optimized trade and instead become a farmer or something else that he wasn't really good at, making his contributions to the economy less valuable and thus denying society the things that he could offer when he was doing what he was actually primed to do. What I'd like to talk about today is how this facet of contract law evolved in more recent memory and how aspects of it which have become quite popular and common in some industries, are once again being legally challenged. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Associated Press, and it's entitled, FTC Proposes Rule That Would Ban Employee Non-Compete Clauses. In early January 2023, the Federal Trade Commission, which among other things tries to prevent or dampen unfair business practices that might get in the way of the economy churning along as it optimally could, proposed a ban on non-compete agreements in the United States. For context, this announcement was made more than a year after President Biden ordered the agency to curb the use of these agreements as part of a larger effort to goose the economy following a torrent of economic chills and slowdowns triggered by the COVID-19 pandemic. The FTC estimates that about $300 billion in additional wages could be paid out to American workers every year if non-competes were to go away because people would be better compensated, as competition for employees, especially highly skilled and knowledgeable ones, would be more competitive, and it would also be expected to increase the overall number of career opportunities available to about 30 million people. It should also, according to those same estimates, improve working conditions for many laborers who currently suffer under unfavorable, unsafe, and basically just badly maintained circumstances and workplaces. A lot of people are stuck in their jobs because they would need to cross over to a new industry if they left their current position because of these agreements, either losing a few years from their main career or having to start fresh and lower down the career ladder with a new one. In some cases, they could maybe move to get out of a contractual geographic restriction, but not always, and moving is not free or consequence-free either. So they are thus stuck in these jobs that maybe don't pay as much and are maybe unsafe or just psychologically or physically damaging to them in some way. So the idea is that, as described in the intro, getting rid of these non-competes in the U.S. could put more money in workers' pockets, latently cutting back on aggressive profit-seeking by companies that, in practice, take would-be profits from the pockets of the employees by not paying them what they could otherwise fetch in a freer market. This move could also improve workplace conditions and, theoretically at least, that would improve employee happiness and satisfaction and health across several metrics. 
win-win, then, for the government and employees, though perhaps not always, not immediately anyway, a win for the businesses that currently use these types of agreements to keep folks locked in for their own profitable purposes. A 2019 analysis estimated that somewhere between 36 and 60 million Americans are under some kind of non-compete agreement, and while the majority of positions with this type of agreement attached to them are higher-end, skilled, and managerial positions, folks who may know secret things that they might share with competitors if they were to be hired away, Despite that, a growing number of employees who make less than $13 per hour are also operating under non-competes, possibly because these companies don't want to compete with other low-paying employers for a relatively small population of folks available to work these jobs at that price, and possibly because, frankly, they can get away with it. The people that they are keen to hire at that price point are not likely to push the issue or threaten to get lawyers involved. So the companies ostensibly do this in part because they know they can, and partially because they might as well. It gives them more leverage than they would otherwise have, and a small advantage in the lower-paid employment marketplace, where their competitors might otherwise steal those employees away. The FTC recently took action against three companies that imposed significant non-compete restrictions on lower-wage workers, including security guards who were threatened with a $100,000 fine if they ever violated the terms of the agreement they signed. This provides a preview of what might happen if this rule goes through as currently pitched. The FTC would prohibit the use of these types of contracts and addendums in the future and nullify existing ones, requiring the companies that currently wield them to not just scrap that part of their contract with their employees, but also inform the relevant workers that those clauses are no longer in effect. The public has 60 days to submit comments on this rule before it takes effect, and there's a chance it will be watered down in some way to appease specific industry interests before it becomes official regulatory policy. And it's likely, during this period, there will be significant pushback, as although there doesn't seem to be a huge, overt lobby for companies imposing these agreements willy-nilly on their security guards, these are incredibly common contractual add-ons in the tech world and in other research and development-heavy industries, because the value of information these workers are in the position to know can be quite extravagant. It's something like working in a job that requires you to know Coca-Cola's secret recipe, basically, if you understand how a tech employer's secret sauce algorithm works. And espionage between such companies is already somewhat common, so these are not unwarranted concerns. Google worrying about their high-level engineers leaving to work for Microsoft is similar to Coke worrying that their secret recipe-knowing beverage scientists will get hired away at Pepsi with that sacred knowledge in their brains ready to be shared or accidentally divulged to their primary competitor. It's worth noting that few entities are outright defending these agreements, many of them instead approaching their defense in a more tactical and subtle way, suggesting that while it is fine to see blanket agreements, and agreements for security guards, that sort of thing, go away, in some contexts these agreements are actually important, and it could leave American businesses, especially those in high-tech, medical, and other such fields, weaker when competing internally and externally on the international market if they were to disappear entirely. 
these companies could see more of their secret sauce recipes and algorithms spilling out into the open, and their employees could be hired away by, for instance, a Chinese company, which might then convince these employees to share what they learned at their previous job legal consequence-free. This concern could consequently incentivize big companies to use more non-disclosure agreements, or NDAs, which are basically legally binding agreements that say you cannot say anything about some of the things you learned at work, and that comes with its own set of concerns and considerations. Worth noting, though, is that the FTC is also reportedly taking a close look at NDAs, maybe teeing these types of agreements up as a next-step target, which would further limit corporations' ability to protect their secrets and hobble their employees as part of that protection effort. That said, it could be that the FTC, under this FTC head, Lena Khan, who is a well-known legal scholar who's big on antitrust law and a well-known big tech skeptic, and whose inauguration to the position of FTC chairwoman in 2021 was thus kind of a head-turner, it could be that she sticks with her guns and reasons that the market needs this boost, even with those potential negative consequences, and sticks with her seeming position that the big tech world, plus many connected industries, have gotten out of control over the past few decades, spiraling into overpowered, borderline, and in some cases literal monopolists during a period period of low interest rates and at times nearly free and nearly unlimited debt, which allowed them to scoop up all their competitors and at times collaborate with each other in such a way that the businesses always came out on top, while their employees were kept under heavy and omnipresent corporate thumbs. It could be, in other words, that this comment period is just for show, to check all the legal process boxes, and the FTC is preparing to get rid of existing and to prevent the implementation of all new non-compete agreements, which would require a fair bit of restructuring for many businesses, fewer employer-employee law-based biases benefiting primarily those running these businesses, and possibly lead to a more dynamic economic playing field, with more leverage granted to employees who can then easily shop their know-how and labor around which would be especially potent right now, at a moment in which the job market is already quite competitive and workers have already started to hold out for better pay and more lifestyle fundamental benefits, like childcare and better healthcare options, at the minimum, if they're going to be convinced to stick with any one employer for any amount of time. I'd like to recommend today is called Status and Culture, How Our Desire for Social Rank Creates Taste, Identity, Art, Fashion, and Constant Change by W. David Marks. This book is an excellent and well-researched summary of some of the forces, psychological, social, and otherwise, that nudge us toward seeking status and how various cultural and economic and otherwise forces reinforce that latent desire to stand out and be admired and be appreciated and to gain various sorts of status for survival purposes historically, but also increasingly for success and self-realization and other sorts of purposes as well. 
It contains some interesting discussions on things like taste and identity and fashion and the constant reemergence of certain trends in art and fashion and music and everything else. And it demonstrates in many different ways how the pursuit of status and what we might broadly label culture form a self-reinforcing cycle that all of us play into to varying degrees, whether we realize it or not. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Status and Culture by W. David Marks. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. If you're looking for a concise and daily dose of news summarizing and analysis, you might check out another one of my projects, One Sentence News, which is both a podcast and an email that you can receive every weekday. More information about that at onesentencenews.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube, and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.